2: We made this. Hello everyone and welcome to The Time Is Now. My name is Kurt North and Silent Green is people. And welcome to our coverage of season three, the final season of Millennium. And this episode is Exegesis and that aired on the 9th of October and follows up on last week's episode, The Innocents, where we find Frank Black and Emma um, following up on the remote viewers, which we find out during this episode. And to join me, and to talk about this episode is last week's guest, Chris Knowles. Chris, how are you doing, mate? How are things going?
1: Doing great. Glad to be here. Glad to be back.
2: Yeah, it's it's good. It's good to be getting onto the season three bandwagon now. I feel like, you know, it's it I took a little break between um see at the end of season two. You know, it, it it was quite heavy that those last few episodes. Um, you know, Darren's a lovely guy. But uh, when you're talking about the end of the world and uh, people going <laughs> insane, you know, you need a little bit of a break. So, um, so we took a break, but I, we're into the, into production of season three now. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, it's, it, it's, good. It's it's nice to be organizing stuff. It's nice to be able to speak to people about, you know, coming onto the show and likes of yourself from last week's, which we recorded. So that's all, that's all good. So I, I'm feeling back into the millennium zone, which is all, which is all brilliant. So. We are talking about exegesis. Now we talked about the IMDB score last week. Um mm-hmm. and it's got the same score, it got seven point two. Uh I think we're because of the we've generally talked about that episode, and because it's two party, we might as well just jump straight into this one. Um It has a, a different take this episode to the last one. The last one had a a few things to to work on about introducing people, about you know, getting the the idea of mother and daughter and that kind of thing, and then we get the cliffhanger, and we do go straight into that um, with the um, you know where the car pulled up and the car falling over. But um, what what you, what's your general opinion on 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 this episode? Bearing in mind, it it has a slightly different abstractness to it, if that's a word, and that it um, you know takes takes a, a new direction in the show. And how much what would you rate it?
1: Um- I, I probably the same that I would rate the, the first
2: episode and, you know, soft date. Yeah, I, w- I would go with that. I think it's, um, it, it has like, as I say, the last one was kind of procedural, but, but because it needed to be, and this one's a- an interesting one, I think. And it's going to be interesting to see what your, what your thoughts are. So um, uh, it does take a bit of a turn with the, with the kind of the grill flame and stuff. Do you want to, should we just um go straight into that? I think just with the, the this idea of the CIA um, stuff that that's kind of brought up in the episode,
1: yeah, which is all based on fact, is, by the way.
2: Yep, yep. Um, I think there was twenty six thousand missions, and there was bait on two hundred and seventy seven people at, from my research. I don't know if that's that's exactly right, but it closed down in nineteen ninety five. Apparently, is that right?
1: Yeah, it was actually shut down. Shut by, down uh, by by Congress. Um, there was uh, quite a bit of to do about it. There was quite a bit of controversy uh, about it, but uh, I'd actually uh, been to a, this, uh, I guess you would call it maybe a symposium or conference out in California in 2008 and 2009, and I met the guy who started that program, uh, who, who I believe the Don Cody character in this episode is based on, All
2: right, and okay. then
1: I also met the guy who um, you know was there at the end, who was running the program at the end so uh you know got very interesting take on this that is is a bit different than I think uh maybe a lot of people have
2: well okay then let's let's um let's talk about that in concept of millennia then because the, the, I, I mentioned last week about the this idea that they they have uh, with force Majora in nineteen nineteen in seasons one and two of this um rather than like two owls and roosters battling against each other or you've got the trust um, you know, they've got all these little groups that are within and without they're all infighting, trying to you know, get MacGuffins to survive the coming uh, apocalypse and then we obviously get the apocalypse but this this one goes back to those kind of feelings of Force mature about surviving or 1919 about having hope, having children being the, the future of it and just touching upon the, the grill flame stuff that you know that the that the way that Millenniums portrayed in here is that they're a, they're a um, you know, a threat to to them, and it's all about this control thing, which was a thing in season two, to be fair. But uh, it's interesting how they they've incorporated the the grill flame, you know, remote viewing, future telling kind of aspect to it, isn't it?
1: it it's really surprising too, because it, it's not something that you that's something you would expect more in an X Files episode, yeah. and that's you got, you know, the following <laughs> yeah. year. With uh, the sixth extinction and, and Michael Critchgow and everything. So it, it was a real, um, I guess, a left turn. But it always seems to me that, uh, so there's this whole controversy is, you know, is Frank psychic or is he intuitive and everything? And I know, uh, you know, Chris Carter had always sort of um, landed on the whole idea of, uh, you know, this is, just intuition and he's just a you know, very imaginative guy and i i don't believe that at all i think that frank is psychic and i i think that there was probably a lot of uh i don't know maybe dissension in the ranks in the writer's room you know what i mean like that yeah. maybe people have a different take on it and, and i think that that is that these two episodes are kind of the way to sneak that in under the door you know to kind of Introduce the possibility that you know Frank is is psychic or, or you know is a remote viewer himself, and uh, you know like why would he know this guy? <laughs> you know like why would he know this Don Cody guy? Maybe it had done work for them. So I, I think there are a lot of implications being drawn there, and uh, I, I think that's really effective in, in uh, reintroducing that whole debate i guess you would say i mean i don't know how many people are paying attention i don't know how many people cared but you know <laughs> at least for the people who were i, I you know.
2: yeah i i definitely paid attention to it because it is interesting how the you know he you mentioned about the the cody thing about he seems to know the person sri that that there's there's that to it that at one point in the episodes he talks about uh, talks to andy and says look i see it i see it. you know it hasn't happened for a long time you know, that's almost explicitly saying you know his, his gift is back, as such that you know over the five six months that Catherine's died, and you know he's he's had whether or not you view the the static as him having those flashes of of I know that there was the um, what Darren was saying to me um during those episodes was like the static was kind of like a, a Darren Morgan thing, at, at, like the you know the, not the airtime that they were getting um, aspect, but uh, you know whether or not you view that as him having a vision of the static of things just being static and whatever. But it's interesting how the that he, he, after these five months that he's starting to see it again, and especially towards the end of this episode where she actually touches him, and he does see visions of the future, and he, he picks that butterfly, which is one of the things I was going to bring up um you know about this recurring butterfly theme that that started off in the first episode didn't really touch upon it which i thought was quite nice actually because it's not often that we see things that are like placed in just ready for the next second episode in a lot of episodes so it's nice that they 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 weave that in later on but it is um you know it's more explicit than ever that that he's he has and it's it's almost like they're they're putting that in universe in general as well that they've got this you know the remote viewers are there that he's potentially part of that that he has that ability um you know it's really interesting how they they kind of as you say put it under the carpet and has left the door open for you know frank to have this gift and you know it's changed in so many ways with the you know things like okay round two name something that's not boring Oh, what's the what's the episode? Uh, the second season, early second season. Uh, a uh, single blade of grass, for example. The, the visions he has there, uh, you know, compared to what he has in season one, and then season three, obviously, then, you know, he has this kind of remote viewing experience, and it's just uh, another play on that. But it seems to be more focused on the entire episode more than just you know just a glimpse or. Or um, you know, it's not as ex- it's not it's more explicit it as ever has been.
1: Well, I, you know, I think that this is part of the effort to, you know, it's it's it seems to me like a soft reboot almost. Yeah. And you've know, you, you know your your whole new cast and and all the storylines are kind of changed around. So, and again, I mean, you know what you want to do with a pi- a pilot or, uh, you know, a soft reboot pilot within a series is just make sure that you're setting up the basic plot points that will be developed over the season. you know, I, I think that um, if you watch the X-Files pilot, uh, I, and, and even the Millennium pilot, I mean, I think both pilots are just so perfect at, setting up the universe that you're going to be working within right and i think that i know that you know morgan and wong had kind of wanted to do and and i guess maybe someone would argue that they did you know a soft reboot themselves but they they, they were following on a, a cliffhanger and a continuing storyline <clears throat> and i i must say that um god did i hate that brian rodecker character um <laughs> I, there are very few uh, characters that I just absolutely despise in 1013 shows, but boy, did I, I. And it's funny that they just sort of got rid of him halfway through the season because, like, oh, this isn't working. Yeah, and it's a shame because I, I think that guy who played him was a good actor, but that character was just so badly written. Um, but when you get to the, um, so there were a couple of things going on here. So w- w- they, I think, and I think a lot of this is Johansson, you know, because I don't know how much investment Doug had in this. I, I, he might've been more of like, a, um, you know, a nuts and bolts kind of Bob Goodwin kind of guy. <clears throat> I think a lot of this was coming from Johansson. Well, obviously because he wrote this episode, right? But, yeah. um, you know, like the butterfly symbolism, that's like, I don't know how deep you want to get into that. Because that's, you know, you can get really lost with, again, with a lot of the uh, internet conspiracy stuff or, you know, sort of Sama's Dot underground conspiracy stuff because there was this whole thing with this Project Monarch, which is like this mind control program that allegedly grew out of MKUltra, but um, the remote viewing programs actually did grow out of MKUltra. So there's a a direct lineage there. You know, you never really have that, explanation like what what are those butterflies actually doing like why are they there uh i, I think that that smacks to me of of Johansson, who I, I think is just kind of you know putting down a marker just in case he tries to get into the like the whole monarch symbolism later on in the in the season um but i again i think what they're really doing and, and I think they they did really well because I think that they did you know did a great job at setting up the new world that we're going to be operating in. And I think that this episode was you know getting a little deeper, like how crazy is this gonna, is this stuff going to get? And and again, this whole association with remote viewing and and the apocalypse, you know, <clears throat> that to me feels very Carter-esque because that's something that you know we'd seen before and, and we'd see after in the X Files, right? You know, with Gibson praise and everything like that, and then later with Mulder in the Sixth Extinction and and Fatih. So that to me feels like a Carter um, injection, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so there, there, I, I think there are a, a lot of different people's. Uh, you know, this broth has a lot of different cooks, but I I think it came together really well. But again, I mean, this is like this is a very grown up millennium. You know, I mean, like this. Season one of the Millennium is very, you know, it's like death metal. You know, it's like it's a Marilyn Manson album played out on television. Right. And I think it's interesting that you had even the same kind of graphics. I mean, if you look at the kind of graphics that you saw with Millennium as far as the uh, the credits and some of the. Um, promotional materials and then those lead-ins with the, the quotes from the bible passages and stuff i that none of that would seem out of place on like a nine inch nails on a marilyn manson album and i think that's kind of the aesthetic that they were playing into but I, i'm not yeah. just were they, sure
2: with even had nine inch nails on the uh pilot episode didn't they so did they have nine
1: inch nails oh they did they yeah. had pig right and they also yeah. had uh more human than human you know white zombie yeah so yeah, it's pretty clear that, that Carter was uh, Carter. It's it's interesting too because he's he's very influenced by music and uh, you know kind of alternative music too as, as well. I mean um, those big bass drums, you know, with with the uh, what is it called when they come back from a commercial break? I'm, I'm blanking out on the name of that phrase there. But you know when you come back from the commercial break and be like boom boom, right? You know what yeah. I mean? That's sampled from a, a song called When Mama Was Moth. You know, there's your uh, kind of butterfly symbolism again from this uh, Cocteau Twins album called uh, Head Over Heels. I mean, it's the, the, those drums are like if you if you go to you, anybody who wants to hear like those big millennium drums, just go to just look up When Mama Was Moth on YouTube. And, you know, there it is right there. It's kind of funny. They just sampled it. I mean, they, they would change the pitch and stuff, but it's a direct sample of the of those drums. So. Carter, you know, is is very much drawing on that kind of mentality and, and that, you know, at, at that time, very marginal, alternative kind of worldview that I think informs a lot of Millennium. But I, I think that, again, it's like the first season is just too dark. It's too heavy. It's too uncompromising. It's too unrelenting. And I think they kind of went a little too far in the other direction with some, with some of the uh, season two episodes. And then – season three is like it's kind of like it's trying to recapture that equilibrium you know it's it's try, you know it's not trying to dismiss the things that uh you know the, a lot of the positive changes that were made in season two but it's trying to you know integrate them with the 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 aesthetic that the show first started out on so it's it's, it's a it's a tough balancing act but um i i think that it's interesting to me, you know, getting back to the whole issue with the, the butterflies and the psychics and all that kind of stuff that that's it only seems like that's the third option that's the third row that's door number three they they chose to take in 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 this effort to try and you know reintegrate these two extraordinarily different seasons of television, <laughs> yeah. together.
2: Yeah. I mean, they do it. I mentioned in, in the, in the first episode about the, the eyes as well. The eye seems to be a recurring theme that they uh, obviously have put in place and, and that resonates more through the season than the, the, unfortunately the butterflies do. But, but as you say, it's interesting that they, they, they have put that in there. Um, so the Millennium group obviously appear more in here as well. Cause Mabius makes his first appearance and we get the appearance of Peter Watts as well. And Frank's, um, reaction to Peter when, He's at the school is is an interesting one in itself, and I think it plays off really well because the thing about we mentioned this last episode. I think it was yourself that mentioned this about the the way that that Peter's portrayed in in this season that people have um, strong opinions about. But in this particular scene, if we're just looking at this particular scene, there's nothing in this that actually implies Peter any different any difference to what Peter is now. Peter obviously disappeared at the end of uh, The Time Is Now, um, you know, because he was going to see Lara and obviously he disappears at that point. So we don't know what's happened between then and now. But there is this... um you know, the fact that Frank is going all out is, he's literally, you know, he's, he's a loose cannon at this point. And Peter is actually saying, you're not listening to me kind of thing. And he is trying to talk to him and just Frank's not letting him. And I think that's a brilliant reintroduction of the, of the pairing because they bounce off each other so well. But I do like the way that they've brought him in here because it's like, Peter's actually the calm, cool, collected. I want to talk one. And it's only when you get to the, the, uh, there may be a scene when he's in the car that there's anything with the
0: lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
2: this is your captain
1: speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky
2: play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky
0: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
2: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. we were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18
2: plus. Kind of off kilter with it. It's just really interestingly played.
1: Yeah, well, again, it's it's also like the point of view storytelling. So, like, you kind of get the feeling that this is all through Frank's eyes. And and, and he would naturally be very soured on the group at this point, right? Yeah. I, I yeah. think that you would have good reason to be. And... You know, I I think that, you know, when you say that Peter now sees him as a loose cannon, I I think that's very apt, you know, I mean, that happens all the time. And I I think this, um, you know, I think one of the problems, again, is that people, you know, particularly people online and, and online fandom have like very peculiar in universe types of expectations of how characters are supposed to act. And it draws on I don't think it draws on the same you know, the same kind of material that that a millennium or an X Files would be trying to draw on. You know, like you can't expect everything to be like uh, Warehouse thirteen or supernatural or something where there's this very clubby, fanny, conny kind of way that the characters interact with each other. I mean what 1013 is trying to do is is trying to place this in the context of how things happen in the real world and when yeah. you know somebody somebody's wife dies a horrible death because of this engineered virus i mean that's going to change the way people think about other people <laughs> yeah. i mean you, you know what are they supposed to do yeah and but you know it's interesting too because even i know that even um lance Henriksen, was you know he didn't know what was going on as far as how he should be relating to Peter and, and, and whatnot. I mean, I, I think um, <clears throat> Terry O'Quinn understood, and I think he played it beautifully. But, I, you know, the thing is, is that the way um, television is done, you don't get like a full script, right? You know, you don't get – so you can't sit there and look at the – you know, you get pages like bits at a time, you know, and you've got to play particular scenes – without knowing the, the overall context of the story. And this is something, you know, I was just reading some uh, interviews with people, you know, be involved in the X-Files, and, you know, it was just really amazing to me that, like, people like, you know, Bob Goodwin, Rob Bowman, you know, uh, <clears throat> Kim Manners would be making these episodes and not have any idea what the hell was going on and wouldn't have any idea what was going on until the show was caught you know until the show was edited so i i think that that's you know maybe something that should have been communicated a little bit more effectively to lance but um maybe you know him not knowing it adds that extra bit of friction you know
2: yeah because it kind of informs the character because he the way that we're seeing as you say seen through frank's eyes he's, he's lost his 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 wife He's having to bring up a child on his own and the people that he now believes was involved. And in. he, he's already had this, you know, this balance between, if you, if you look at it, as you say, more from a point of view of a human experience rather than just what TV would do around that time. You know, X-Files was just as guilty sometimes as, as any anything else. You'd have the episode, the next episode, nothing would really matter with what happened beforehand. You know, you get, obviously... um slight adjustments in things like the pine bluff variant where he's in folly ado he's still got the you know the the finger tape and things like that some continuity that way but from a you know a growth the growth of Molden and Scully was a very, very long drawn out process. Um, uh, you know, and Star Trek would be the same, you know, you'd you'd have a forty five minute episode, someone would be Really, kind of affected during that episode because of something that was done to them. But next week they'll be back as normal. So there is like a a reset thing going on. But the way that, that this is portrayed is that you know we don't you 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 can't really accept um, or expect um, you know us to to know whether or not the Millennium Group was involved. It could have been written completely different in that you know that the Millennium Group are being blamed, but they aren't the real. Um, you know the real um, antagonist in 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 the series as such. Uh, obviously, you know that's slightly different to what what actually happens, but it kind of goes back to something that's mentioned in this episode actually about the the way that Baldwin talks about the women and that he uh, the casket's being found in the in the basement that it is believed that they are responsible for the outbreak that happened last spring is is what's said, but then it's actually Frank who says you know. They're not the terrorists. Terrorists has been rained on them, and there's there's um, intricacies like that which I I think ten thirteen do really well. It's and you know the fact that it's very explicitly levelled at Millennium at that point. It's like, well, are they going down that path? You know, as we see it now, uh, without you know the, without the foresight of what we what we know for the rest of the season. But at this moment in time, if you're watching this fresh. You don't really know that. And, you know, some people will take it immediately as like, oh, they're the bad guys already. But I don't think it plays that way He I think that Frank is hurt that he's going through kind of a grieving process and that Peter is the, the sounding board and, and he's the one that's being blamed for what has happened in the, in the time is now. And it's just a really interesting development on that, from that point of view. And as you say, I think Terry O'Quinn does a fantastic job, as does Lance Hendrickson, the way that that, that is portrayed. And as a first like coming together, I think it really does work.
1: Yeah, it does. And it's the kind of thing that, um, again, you, you're setting, you're setting up, you know, the bowling pins, right. <laughs> yeah. for, for later on in the season. And I, I think that those kind of, you know, I, I think there's a lot of care here. I, I think that, um, at, at one point, uh, Ken Horton had said that, you know, he would come back, I guess they'd come back from maybe the Christmas break or something like that. And, you know, you met with chip and like, and they said like, do you have any ideas? And it's like, no, I don't have any ideas either. You're know, like, they were just kind of exhausted at, at, at mid season, but I don't think that, you know, what you see on screen reflects that. And I think a lot of that has to do with, I think that there was a lot of care to set up this new world that the, the characters. And when you do that, when you set that up, you know, really carefully, it's almost like once it comes time to start writing scripts, which is always gonna be a torturous process, that you know, half the job is already done. You know, like one of the things I say about Millennium and, and, and also about the X Files is that so many of these episodes operate like a feature film. And you know, even though they're only forty three minutes long or however long, um, look at how uh, a feature film is gonna take how long? At least twenty minutes. World building, right? It's going to take twenty minutes at least to set up the the kind of universe that, that the characters are operating within. So I, I think you know, in that in that regard, that it, it you really get you know you get all like it's like what did Hitchcock say? It, it was it Hitchcock? Is like you know a film is like real life with only you know with all the boring parts cut out? Was it oh, Hitchcock? Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, the story's um you know, a good a good solid uh ten thirteen episode, you know, which means not uh, any any harsh realm episodes, because harsh realm was trash. I just wanna <laughs> always get my harsh realm digs in there. Um and, and I just you know, it just really bothers me that uh, you know a lot of the I think Millennium could have found its feet with another season. And I think that it was kind of sacrificed at the altar of Harsh Realm, which is just hot trash. Really, it just makes me resent the show all the more. I, I, I think that, that, you know, no network is going to give a, season, a a series three Seasons to find its feet, right? You know, yeah, you, you know, yeah. it's just not going to happen. But yeah. I, I, think I mean, that most
2: I'll... most shows are finding the feet by the third season, aren't they? You know, if you take a Star Trek for example, Next Generation was probably getting better at season three. You know, so yeah, so I think you know, if you haven't found your feet by the third season, then I think it's um, you know, it's difficult. And even in these times, you wouldn't get that long. So it's interesting from that point of view.
1: Oh well, on a network, you wouldn't even get yeah. three
2: episodes. Yeah, you know, I mean, if
1: you if you don't hit the ball out of the park you know first time of bat, you're screwed so again you you have a lot of interesting things going on that you know are underappreciated for a number of different reasons you know one of which is i think people just lost interest in the series um second of all was the uh controversies over season two you know that people took very sort of extreme stances on one way or the other. And I think that that's, that hurt. I, well, I, I think that hurt ten thirteen in general, I, you know, like that there was just this cleavage within the, the fan community, but also, um, you know, a cleavage between, uh, and I'm you know, not cleavage like <laughs> <Most people laughs> that term, but you know, there's sort of a break between, um, uh, Carter and, uh, Morgan and Wong that, um, took a long, you know, uh, these rifts that took a long time to, to repair, um, there was a lot of, a lot of bad feeling. you know, I think mostly between, uh, Glenn Morgan and Chris Carter. And I think one of the problems that, you know, they're just too much alike, you know, you know how like some people are, when they're they're just too similar, they don't get along together. (laughs) It's just like, this. it's almost like same ends of a magnet or something. I, I think that, um, I think in a lot of ways that, you know, there they was just a lot of butting ahead because they just they're almost like brothers, I think, in, in a way. But um, so that hurt the show. So, again, I mean, we're looking at a season that, you know, is, is generally forgotten, is not generally highly regarded, even among a lot of fans of the show. But again, I mean, being somebody who came in. old, you know, as much older than. Most of the people watching the show at the time, I mean, it was in my mid 30s by the time I actually watched this entire season and the entire second season. Well, actually, the entire series, because I'd only seen, I, I don't think I'd seen like more than a handful of each season before, uh, you know, I dived into the boxes. But being older and and being more aware of the you know particularly in this season the the thematic material and the in the source material that they're drawing on I, you know it just blew me I just can't believe like just how hardcore they went on this because I'll tell you something you would not see this kind of stuff on television these days it would just be seen like no forget <laughs> it you know what I mean you're not yeah. you're not going there because some of the stuff they get in in into this in this season, is really dark, it's really heavy, and it's really real. I mean, it's, you know, uh, an episode like Collateral Damage, I mean, that's based on things that really happened, you know? Yeah. Um, so, they were using, you know, Gene Roddenberry had always, had always said, you know, the great thing about science fiction is that you can talk about current events and current politics and everything and, and have that sort of distancing mechanism of science fiction. Just, you know, if anybody calls you out and just say, Hey man, it's only sci-fi. It's, you know, a kiddie show, relax, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, I don't know if you really had that kind of excuse in this show because it's so down and dirty and gritty and, 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 and as real as possible as you can make it. And they're drawing on some really, um, yeah, talking about a lot of things that people got killed for trying to publish about. So it's uh, it's pretty grim.
2: Yeah, I mean, you talked about. I think it's Frank Spotnitz has said this a few times about the, um, you know, we need to base the fantastic in the uh, in reality. You know, look at like the seven thirty one abductees that, you know, using the cancer arc for example, or you know, and and basing it in reality. We you mentioned that last week, um, yeah, touched upon it last week anyway. That um, what I find quite interesting in, in this episode in particular is that the 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 women who are protecting the mother are um you know they they do apart from obviously the eyes being so brightly blue that they, they are they they do seem mundane normal people and they go about the throughout the episode. You know, trying to evade the you know the Millennium Group, which which I personally have a bit of an, a bit of an issue with within this episode. I think it could have been left more, um, you know, uh, what's the word? It could have been it it could have had you, you, you didn't need to be as pointed as to it being the Millennium Group as being the bad guy. It could have just been that something was was going on that there's this party. Could it be the Millennium Group or not? That that's the way I would have more enjoyed it a little bit more that. But we get very pointed to um part of the show, especially in the final act where you've got, you know, someone going, you know, I'm we're a part of the Millennium Group and, you know, we're F you know, ex FBI and it keeps pushing that. And I know we'll get into is it Matri how do you say it, Matroska uh, later on in the in the season? Uh Matrioska? Ma- yeah, Matrioska. You know, I know that they'll touch upon it at that point, um, when we get there in the in the season that, you know, that that's why they're pushing the FBI kind of aspect. But they could have kept that more, uh, you know, at arm's length and just had this mysterious people that are after the the women. But what I like about the women is that they use an easy move. And it's a very coy move that they do. That You know, the fact that on the plane, the plane was brought down. Yes, it's a very kind of terrorist act. It was brought down uh, to hide the fact of the the people who who were surviving because they thought obviously the you know the people would have died on there and they weren't even on the plane or with the the easy move van as well the fact that you know that one one of the women sacrificed herself with that roadblock that she gets end up getting shot at and it's a decoy because they're the other the other two have managed to get away and I like that I like it's it's not it's not going all out there and being you know a fantastic adventure that they are down to earth and it's it's rooted in reality and you know the millennium group are kind of after after them but it's it's only when you get to the third act that it becomes a bit more fantastical especially with frank getting crushed by a lift which i just i don't know about you but i find really comical <laughs> but yeah so it's just really interesting how they how they kind of um you know ground it in reality with, with regards to them
1: i think you're right and i think the weakest part of this episode is that third act um, and that's something, you know, the abandoned missile silo. I mean, we saw that in, 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 uh, Apocrypha. Yeah. Apocrypha. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I, I think it was Josh Whedon who sort of made this veil dig at the, uh, you know, the X-Files and he was talking about like, you know, it always ends up in like an abandoned warehouse or something, you know? <laughs> um, and, it and it, It's funny because, like, when you begin to really think about it, it's like, oh, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) and it does. I mean, right up to the last episode, right? Yeah. So, um, the very last episode. So, you, you, I think there are a couple of things going on there. You've got to have, when you're setting up all these major plot points, you've, it's got to be resolved in, in a big, flashy way. You know, You, you can't just, can't just resolve it like in the way it would be resolved in, in perhaps a real, more real world setting, right? So you've got to have like that kind of splashy 10 13 big finish. Um, but you know, there's also some interesting information there, and it almost seems like there's like some sort of psychic link, you know, between. It's like a mind meld, right? You know, with yeah. the, uh, the the visions of the apocalypse and the nuclear war and so on. You know, I, I think that I think that is kind of it. Always seems to me that that's the goal. You know, is to sort of set up this mind meld. You know, this uh, connection. And again, the is also the psychic subtext that that that, that Johansson certainly is, is clearly trying to reintroduce to the show. So the, yeah, there are a lot of, you know, kind of stock gunfights and, you know, that's the whole thing with, with Frank and, and so on. I mean, you know, you, yeah, you got to have those kind of things because that's almost like if you didn't, people would just say, well, that was really boring. You know, you've got to have some sort yeah. of excitement. You've got to have some sort of grand finale, so to speak. Um, Because that's just, those are the conventions of genre television, right? You know, this isn't um, some, you know, true crime Netflix program. You know, this isn't Mindhunter, which, you know, it's interesting how many comparisons you can draw between Mindhunter and Millennium. You know, I mean, Millennium for a show that was so, so largely forgotten today, I, I think you would. I think it's very fair to say that it's it's pretty much for me.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? No purchase necessary. Void we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: gotten by the general public. It's just amazing how many shows its influenced. I mean, the entire CSI franchise, right? Yeah. And, and you know, certainly Mindhunter, I, I think. It's, yeah, and it's Hannibal. Hannibal. Hannibal, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. So there are a lot of um, people drinking from this well, uh, even if the general public doesn't really appreciate it. And, and you know, those are often the kind of things that I gravitate towards, you know, because I've watched so many, you know, I'm in my mid fifties now and I've seen a lot of movies like more than most people have ever seen in their lives, <laughs> um, watch a lot of television. And, and, and I, I'll tell you, I am just sick to death of it all. Um, I don't know if I've told this story uh, on this podcast, but, I think about maybe 20 years ago. So I was working on like, um, screenplays and there was some interest from people in, in the film industry and some of the stuff I was writing. And I was trying to do like the whole Quentin Tarantino method of like, you know, just film school via VHS rentals. (laughs) And I got this like unlimited. And I think that the the people in the video store dreaded every time I walked in because I got one of these unlimited memberships that most people don't even like use. Right. They just, they, sign up for it and then never use it but i was like going in buying uh renting like five or six movies every you know a shot and and watching them and and by the time i was done i was just like i hate this <laughs> i hate <these> movies <laughs> i hate hollywood i i hate the way these stories are told it's it everything they hit the same beats they hit the same rhythms it's kind of like it you know reminds me of like a, a, a blues thing you know it's like well a lot of people love the blues but you know it just i realize that it's just, it's everything has the same underlying structure, you know, everything is 12 bar, one, four, five, pentatonic, you know, everything is following the same core elements and it just, it just gets exhausting after a while.
2: It does. does. I I remember going to see Gary Moore and uh, you know, as much as I, I I enjoy music, I enjoy going to see bands and things. And uh, after about, I'd say, 30 minutes i was like i need to check out and go, go somewhere else for five minutes because you know blues in itself is, is as you say it's it's that way so it's uh yeah it is interesting how um you know you can get you know as much as i would love to like s- spend the two hours there i just physically couldn't do it um so yeah that's just just my my thing on, on blues anyway yeah and he's a, you know
1: such a great guitarist and he's so great yeah and but it it just gets to be exhausting i I had the same experience i had gone to see the pogues uh, when joe strummer was touring with him as singer and um it was one song for 90 minutes you know they play it faster and they play it slower but it was like one song
2: it's like you know like that kind of like (laughs)
1: digging real kind of thing and you just it just gets exhausting so that's the way I feel in general about movies and TV today. It's just like I'm just exhausted because you just realize that it's all the same. And the things that I really love and the things that I really get excited about, you know, are just like these weirdo visionaries. Like, you know, Twin Peaks, The Return, I just thought was just absolute yeah. godhead. And, and you know, as far as movies go, um, I don't know if you've see, you seen Mandy, the movie Mandy.
2: I haven't seen Mandy, no.
1: Oh, no. you've got to see Mandy. It's it's absolutely brilliant, and it's funny too because I I think there are a lot of like Millennium. I I don't know if there's a conscious uh, influence there, but if you're a fan of Millennium, you're going to see a lot of parallels, or or like, just like just like little little bits, like little hints, little riffs, little bits of flavor that will be very familiar to you. But uh, it's just so completely bug nut crazy that it's just it's it's total but i love that because i want to be surprised right yeah you know one of the things with like television and it's i think it's the same thing with comedy so things you know get played out you know and and we're at a point in time right now where like you know, when when I was growing up, people were interested in like older movies, people were interested in older TV shows, older music, and now that's all just been discarded because you know everything has just worked its way through the the body politic, and and people are just sick to death of it. You know, people don't need to see it anymore. And I, I think you know there's X Files, which has fallen on the the good side of the fence there, and there's Millennium that's fallen on the bad side of the fence, and I think that's really unfair because I think that Millennium. You know, I think it's more relevant today than it's ever been. Right. Mm -hmm. And I also think that it was just so far ahead of its time. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe it was just too far ahead of its time. Maybe these two episodes in some ways were too far ahead of its time. Maybe a lot of the third season was just too far ahead of its time. It was telling stories that people didn't want to hear yet. Right. And maybe today people would want to hear those
2: stories. Well, that's something that, um, Darren and I talked about last season as well as about how it seems to be so, um, you know, of its time. But at the same time, you know, if you placed it in a modern day s- um, scenario, it probably would work. Uh, you know, maybe obviously a slight retooling, but then you would lose some of its, um, you know, magic as well. But it is, um, but it is an interesting, um, issue that, you know, as much as like genre TV is now and the fact that it's all, literally pre-planned in advance that you've and you don't have the issues that we would have at the beginning of this season at the beginning of season three that you have to talk themselves out the corner like we discussed last week or you know um you know you'd have time frames like you say with the kiss episode that we talked about that you know that was put on them you wouldn't necessarily have those issues it would be it would be more condensed and 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 stuff like that or likes of uh you know things that's happened in the x-files with um, Gillian anderson getting pregnant and how that changed the, changed the, the, the landscape of X-Files. So it, there's all, there's all that kind of thing, which might not necessarily happen as much, um, in, in modern day TV, but then, you know, some of the th- stuff that's been mentioned within this episode and the show as a whole, that, as you say, you know, put it into a modern day situation, it wouldn't that be far, that, that far removed really. Um, a couple of things with, uh, Frank, I think. So, uh, we, we talked about Frank. We talked about how he, um, you know, how he's, 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 he's still not quite, quite there with the, the Peter aspect. But there's also these, these few issues that he has with Andy He talks about, you know, the fact that, you know, he's, Andy's saying he's not ready. Uh, and then Frank almost has like a crisis of confidence, uh, at some point. It actually takes Emma, which is one, another reason why I wanted to bring Emma up as well is that, you know, uh, Emma, like sort of Emma Hollis puts in so much um, you know, pulls Frank out of it in some ways because she, he's ready to say, you know, you're better off staying away from me, for example. And she, she's the one that pursues it and sees the, as I mentioned last week, the terrier of the thing. It's like, you no, know, well, there's something about this woman, Frank. You need to come out and see. You need to be able to do this or, or whatever. But in this episode, he, she seems to be the one that gets him back into the field. And I, I think that's a really interesting... And, um, you know, it kind of like feels like, you know, it's an intricate, intricate part of, of the show, which no p- people don't really give it too much credit for. But Frank is going through stuff here. And I think that, you know, it's almost like a rebuilding of his, um, of, of his story really, because he's got, he's literally hit the rock bottom as of season, as of last season. And you have to start somewhere and he has to start from the beginning and work his way up. And Emma's the, the conduit for that.
1: You well, that's again, I mean, I, I just love that character. You know, I just thought it, it was really, it almost seems to me like, so, you know, you have like a, a potion, right? And you need that sort of that one ingredient that's going to be the catalyst for all the other ingredients. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. chemistry or whatever. And I think that, you know, I don't want to put too much on her character and put too much on her shoulders, but it just seems to me that that was the missing element Not just, you know, her character itself, but her viewpoint. Uh, You know, the way she, you know, interacts with Frank and the way she relates to him. It always feels to me that she's, you you know, I don't want to oversell this, but it always seems to me that she's like our representative, you know, like she's. She's representing the viewpoint of the audience watching the show, particularly people who are still on board at this point in time. You know, even though, like, you know, you said the numbers, like, in in 1998 setting, they seem to have cratered, but today, you know, any network showrunner would kill for them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, she's she gives us we're able to enter this very strange and unpleasant world through her the person who has no idea what's going you know or maybe has like an inkling of what's going on but has no idea just how bad this this can all get um you know that offers you know she's like the bridge for us right
2: yeah she is yeah but yeah she is she is the bridge and i think that's probably a good way of describing it because as as you say it's like it's the way that she's um or what I said before that that she's she's pulling Frank out of this. There's otherwise where would he go? Where, where, he, you know maybe maybe the FBI would be the the ones that would, would get him out of the hole, but it it just would I don't think it would work that way. So I think that Emma Emma is vital for that for that reason. As you say, it's um you know and and it's our it's our way in to to Frank. I mean, in the past, obviously with you know with Frank the way that he was and how stoic he is and how. You know, um, confident he is, but at this moment in time, he's not, he's at the, he's at the, he's low ebb. So, so that in itself is good. Um, what do you think to then the, this idea of, uh, of the way that Millennium is kind of asking the question about the, you know, the, the missile silo, for example, at the end, where it, where it's actually explicitly said that the men who built this place, you know, they control the world all within their fingers but the, there's no enemies and there's no wars to take place now and, and you know, they seem to be lost because that seems to be the way that they're going. It's not, you know, the way that season two was portrayed is that, you know, you've got this upcoming apocalypse and whoever, there's sides that can win, whether that be a religious religious analogy or secular one or whatever. But in this one, again, it seems to be like there's no, it's more of an allegory to, to the world because of the fact that at this point in time, you know, September 11th hasn't happened. The war on terror isn't around at the moment. There is the malicious stuff. There is things like the, um, the Oklahoma bobbing and things like that. But there's, um, you know, there's, we're in a really interesting period, um, for millennium around the 97, 96, 97, 98 mark. And they're kind of referencing that at this point saying there's no enemies at the moment.
1: Well, it's a fool's paradise, really, right? I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. just like this little oasis in history. And, I, and this is, and this is why I'm saying that I think the show is more relevant today than before. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe not so much with like the serial killer aspect, because it's, it's, I think it's a lot harder to be a serial killer today with like surveillance cameras everywhere and so on and smartphones and, you know, nobody's going to break down in the middle of the highway and not be able to call somebody anymore. Right. Um, so yeah. you're kind of hobbled in that regard, but, uh, I think that um, you know overall, and 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 really, I think the direction they should have gone in uh, earlier. You know, I, I think that it's it's more. It just feels more relevant today than it did back then, which is really ironic too. You know, it's because it's like most shows exist of their time you know one of the things that you know they always say about the x-files is that it was you know capture the zeitgeist i mean i think that the the x in a lot of regards to the x-files is you know so many things going on in the headlines today were you know prefigured in x-files storylines (laughs) plotlines yeah but i think that the millennium i just think that the general gist of it and the flavor of it is Again, I mean, it was just ahead of its time, and there were a lot of things going on in the '90s that were ahead of their time. You know, a lot of things that were underappreciated, or you know, maybe appreciated only by a small group, that um, you know, are, are built for the future. And I think I think that the um, you know, particularly the season, is that way. I think a lot of people, if a lot of people go back. Um, and watch these episodes in light of like the things that have happened in the intervening 20 years and the things that are going on now and the things that are going on in the news. I mean, if you go back and watch this, particularly the season, but the entire series on a whole, it's going to give you a much different uh, understanding. You know, it's, it's going to change. You know, it fits more with the, the things that are going on, and this is the problem with people who have the ears low to the ground, right? A lot of times when you have your ears low to the ground and you're really tuned into the, to the rumblings in the distance and the things that are going on in the margins of society, um, you just get that far ahead of the curve. And I think, you know, with this season that these, you know, whoever is involved in, in plotting out the season and the storylines, you know, I think a lot of it's Johannesson, but I think a lot of it's Carter too, because I know the things that he was reading. You know, I know that a lot of things that he said that he had been reading in interviews and so on. You know, show up like those themes show up in the season. But you know, they were, um, you know, they're, they're still going on, and and maybe you know they're more prominent in the news and in people's consciousness now because. Twenty years ago, listen, I'm I'm like again, I'm I'm old, right? I'm in my mid fifties, <laughs> right? Um twenty years is nothing. And if you're able to sort of step back and ignore all the 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 hype and the nonsense that you know the tech industry and you know, all these kind of salesmen are trying to push at you, things aren't that much different, you know, like cell phone technology is definitely better today, right? But you know, you talked about social media, <clears throat> we had social media, AOL, you know, Facebook and Twitter are really just AOL, yeah, you know, developed. Yeah. You know, when I look at Facebook, I'm just like, how is this not AOL, right? You know, I'm <laughs> yeah. on AOL in the early 90s, and it's not how is it any different. You know, oh, OK, it's faster and you can put more video up and 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 all this kind of nonsense. But it's it's all basically the same thing. It's not any yeah. different, you know, from dial up AOL. It's not. Yeah. And, it, and I really it drives me crazy because it's just like people sort of parrot these things, like pretending that this has been this great march of progress since the mid 90s. And there hasn't been It's just. It's just not. I mean, I, I always see like the, the mid-90s is when things just stopped. I think like everything just kind of stopped. And, you know, we had incremental improvements. But what can you point to that's going on in the world today that wasn't going on when this series aired? Like name one thing, like one major thing that was not yeah. prefigured or in development when this, this series ended. I can't name anything. Thing It still feels the same to me. When I place myself back in that world, you know, I just remember things were better, you know, and people were generally (laughs) happier and things, the economy was better and all this kind of stuff, but nothing has changed. And and it really, it drives me crazy when people say that it has, because it hasn't, you know, we're not flying around on rocket packs, you know, we're not living uh, in giant glass domes underneath the ocean and we're not... You know flying to the to the lunar cities and and all this kind of nonsense that you know science like I really start to see science fiction and this is a huge tangent this is a huge cyber but i I think it needs to be said like I think science fiction is is a negative corrosive force. In our culture, because it it gives people completely unrealistic and completely unfounded expectations of, of how the world should be and how the world is. It's just it's all fantasy. You know, there's no difference between, you know, even what they call hard science fiction and Lord of the Rings. There just isn't, you know, I mean, we're not. You know, we don't have cities on Mars, you know, we're not flying to other star systems that is so far down the line because of just the reality of like physics you know just basic physics preclude that never mind economy of scale and so on and so forth so what what i'm trying to get at here is that there's no reason to not watch all of millennium you know except for the like 13 years later right or you know some <laughs> of the really crap episodes you know like i don't know wide open you can skip whatever but this yeah. is, there's no reason to not look at it and go this is more relevant today than ever and the world has not changed yeah substance
2: it's a, it's, substance it's a progression isn't it rather than than a, an actual like physical full-on change it's not it's a progression, not even a
1: progression. On, on... it's not it's just incremental it's it's not a progression it isn't it's just incremental kind of cosmetic changes is the only difference between 2020 and 1998. Because believe me, I was alive back then. I was let's see in 1998. I was 32 years old. I had two kids. Right? Yeah. Um, I certainly was making a lot more money back then. But you know, things. Which they just weren't different. They weren't, you know. <laughs> they just weren't. I mean it just drives me crazy that people think that, that we've had some great march of progress and there hasn't been. I think in a lot of ways we've had regress, you because know? I think that um video games and, and and smartphones and social media have really damaged our neurology—it's like damage our attention spans. It's damaged, you know. People have much—you know—mental illness is much more prone now. But you know, all these things you can see the, the the seeds of in Millennium, and that's why it's like people really need to go back. And because I would almost argue that in some ways, it's it's a it's a very hard show to love. It's al- it's a, it's almost an impossible show to love, and it's a very hard show to watch, right? Yeah. But if you really want to understand what's going on today. And how we got here, watching Millennium is is as good a place as anything that I can think of on network television to go. It really is. It's, it's a good a place to go if you really want to see the seeds. And again, it's like people, you know, people like Chris Carter and Chip Johansson who really had their ears very low to the ground and were really in tune with the things that were welling up in the margins and and, the, and the, the the weird corners of technology and culture and politics and you know fringe, so on and so forth. You're gonna see it here. And it's like when people just dismiss season three, I just it just like. Did you watch any of the other episodes? Like, why, why do yeah. you do that? Because you know you were influenced by like being in high school and being influenced by, by people were saying on, I don't know, alt TV or whatever alt TV Millennium. What I don't even yeah. remember because I, I was just so. Yeah, because
2: completely... there was alt all TV X Files. I don't, I don't remember. I, I remember vaguely looking at alt TV X Files. I don't remember if there was an alt TV Millennium. It must have been, it must have been. I don't personally remember that. But
1: oh, alt TV X Files was it. Uh, oh yeah,
2: all TVX it, files. It was my, yeah, a I remember dumpster. that. Yeah, it was.
1: It was just yeah. <laughs> trash. It really was. I mean, I would scan it, but you know, you see these threads, and you know, it's one of the things that happened. By the time I, I would say, by this point in time, I, I, I seem to remember that all TVX files was just sort of dominated by like a small handful of people, who, if you did not agree with them, they would dogpile you. Yeah, and, and, and drive people out. And I, I have to say, one of the things that really hurt the X-Files as a, as a, as a phenomenon and, and as a phenomenon within fandom was just how incredibly toxic fandom got. Because by the time uh, of like season seven, season eight, uh, the, the, the fandom was just poisonous. And so many people who would, you know, oh, I want. I, I really like that episode of the X-Files. I think I'll go online and see if anybody's talking about it. And they would just be sandblasted by just pure venom and vitriol and just said, oh, screw this, you know. And yeah. and, and one of the things, I mentioned this in other, uh, I think, on the on the X-Cast, but like Vince Gilligan, you know, Mr. Southern Gentleman, soft-spoken, polite Vince Gilligan gets yeah. absolutely livid, gets you know, and it gets apoplectic when he talks about how um, the fandom um, treated uh, Rob Patrick and Annabeth Gish. It, it makes him very, very angry. And I think that was kind of written into the, the series towards the end there. But, you know, at this point in time, I, I don't think that people even cared enough about Millennium to, to argue. And I, I think that's a real shame. I, I really do, because... There was so much interesting material. I mean, you know, just going down the line here. Um, uh, let's see, "Sound of Snow," which we've talked about. Um, you know, the whole thing with subliminals and, and electronics and stuff. Um, collateral damage. Uh, I'm sort of going back and forth here. Yeah, um,
2: "Dream of Mercury."
1: Yeah, Darwin's Eye. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, 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 you know, particularly I, I hope that you're going to have me on to talk about the last two episodes because I just think they were phenomenal. And I think it's just so brilliant the way that they, you know, tied it together. Like I think, like, you know, I said, like Jim Morgan tried to do with uh, Fonda's Mutation because, you know, people go, well, what's this serial kill of the week and how do they justify this and everything like that? And, and the thing that, that Horton and Johannesson said that I just thought was just so brilliant and just so you know just vicious was like well there's all these serial killers out there because the millennium group is programming them so (laughs) they can justify their own power right and and i just thought that was absolutely you know we can get to that later but again i mean this this is just a series that that people need to watch um and you know if if you're a fan of the series and you're a fan of the x-files And you're just like a conscious human being who's aware of what's going on in the world around you. I think this is television that you really need to rediscover. I really do.
2: Right. Well, I think that um, draws it perfectly to a close. And unless you've got anything else for this episode, I can confirm that you are scheduled to to be on the final two episodes of the season. So... We'll have, we'll have great fun talking about that. But uh, with regards to this episode, um, is there anything else you wanted to just touch upon? Or should we call that a, a day and catch you later on in the season?
1: Um, oh, the one thing I do find interesting is um, there's a weird connection between uh, these episodes and Minority Report. Um, Claire Scott is in Minority Report. I don't know if you knew that. She plays a very small role. But the woman who plays um, one of the the, the daughters is in Minority Report. You know, fairly small role, but when they break into the building where Tom Cruise is hiding in the bathtub, um, she's the mother who starts screaming at the kids. Um, I'm trying to think who else. There there are some people in this episode, like just –
2: that we're in the minority report is actually within arm's reach of me (laughs) on my dvd collection so it's literally to my left
1: yeah yeah i really i really like that movie and talk about you know prophetic right talk about a movie that um has legs and uh seems more relevant today i mean you know just go to google news and just type in minority report and you're going to see hundreds of stories from the past few months because it's something that people are constantly talking about yeah. But, um, you know, there are people who this is a weird 1013 thing, because like uh, Neil McDonough, who is in uh, a couple of nine season episodes, is, you know, one of the main characters in that. And um, Patrick Kilpatrick, who is in an eighth season episode, is in that just, you know, that's kind of things that I just I'm fascinated by, like just like these two totally separate uh, franchises really that have all this mm. crossover with, uh, with various characters. The, the woman by the name is uh, Katie Boyer, is uh, the actress who's in both.
2: Okay so if you look at social media um Adam Chamberlain has been on just to uh, welcome welcome back Adam we're looking forward to seeing you on the show um he just put I just re- rewatched this two-parter and I gain more and more respect for it with each viewing it doesn't get a lot of love but I'm sure that more about how it plays off when we left things and the time is now it's an intriguing story which is often unexpected turns and I think it is to be applauded for that. Engage or re-engage with it on its own terms. And there's much more to commend it. So if you hadn't seen, here's a question for you then. Do you think coming into this as a new viewer without really knowing about everything in season two, do you think that that would be, uh, or trying to like forget everything that happened in the first two seasons, that it stands up on its own? these two episodes oh i do and
1: i think if you cut yeah. these two episodes together it'd make a great movie like you know do you remember how like in the 90s and 90s you'd have these like movies based on like john grisham books or something like yeah yeah or i don't know you know um just this kind of thriller writers you would, have like a movie with like i don't know uh Jeff Bridges and Meryl Streep or something, you know, like this, the general's daughter, <laughs> just any kind of like Ken Follett or just whoever, just various kind of just stories that weren't blockbusters, but just really good thrillers. I, I think this would stand up pretty well if this was just released as like a, a thriller in and of yeah. itself. I think yeah. it would it'd stand up. And I, I think that it does such a great job of, of reintroducing the characters that you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be reliant on that. And I think that if you like if you had somebody who were like, Oh, I'm you know, I want to check out this millennium thing or you know, what's that about? You know, this wouldn't be a bad place to start.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And on Twitter as well, we've got some feedback on Twitter. So um at Oscar Grouchos says, um, time has been kind to this two parties. Again it's it's kind of coming back to that what you said before about revisiting this and re-engaging, so that's both Oscar Groucho and Adam have both said that, you know, both like looking at this again, which is really good. Uh, The retooling of Marburg as a victim of media hyperbole uh, through the prism of an anxiety-ridden age is especially timely given this year's developments. Definitely, written introduction of Emma Hollis, the best part of the third season. And I've just, uh, Russ Hugo also um, jumped on that as well and said, um, I'll first echo support for Oscar Gratcho's points. Emma Hollis is one of the top, top aspects of season three and her introduction is done quite well. To a much colder, including more blue and grey tones, distant and stark feeling. In that sense, the production definitely matches the mental state of Frank going forward, it also helps ground some of the more surreal episodes. Like season three as a whole, there are some strange and poor choices, but it's got a lot more to appreciate than it's generally given credit for, at least once we get past episode five. Stephen E. Miller's portrayal of Andy McCurran never really clicked for me. He's a good actor, but I don't think he had the right chemistry with Henriksen. Barry Baldwin's introduction is a bit too campy, i.e. let's make sure people know, He's the AJ Rimmer of season three. That's a red dwarf, not mentioned, Um, but not bad. And Peter Alterbridge does a really good job with the material he's given. Overall, the clone storyline doesn't work for me that well and feels too much like X-Files. However, I really enjoy the production style change. So what about the production style change and the the actual kind of uh, photography and the and the kind of um, filters and stuff that they use within this because there there is that element as well isn't there, there is a, a, a definite change in the stylistic approach to the show as well
1: I liked it a lot I you know it it had like a real aura about it very atmospheric and um I think I think it really sold the stories even when the stories were weaker it reminds me of the um you know the cinematography in, in season 11 of the X-Files that even when they Storylines weren't really up to snuff. Um, It it really, it felt, it felt like vintage X Files, but different. You know, it it was sort of the best of both worlds. And and it's a real shame that the event series, uh, season ten. Joel Ransom's, you know, very good cinematographer, but I, I think that there was just too many too many balls that needed to be juggled, you know, they were shooting in summer and, you know, there was just, just too many problems with that, but it, it does remind me of that. It just has, it just has this kind of, I don't want to say like fairy tale aura, but it just feels like you're entering like a different world. that looks like ours, but it's almost like a parallel reality. So I think that's a very, yeah, Yeah. that's a good comment.
2: Yeah. It's a very, very stupid comment there. I think, yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the, um, you know, I think the the episode episode plays into that as well, which is which is really good. So yeah, so that that's the social media for for, for this episode. So keep them coming, guys. It's uh, much appreciated. Okay, then. Well, Chris, uh, you will be back. You're going to, I think, you're coming back for Skull and Bones actually. So we'll oh, see. Boy. You in, in that's a, a treat. In, yeah, exactly. So we're hoping to uh, to arrange that with yourself and John Kenneth Muir. So that'll be good to uh, to talk about that. We've got various returning guests as well just before we, we finish off on the, on the second week, we've got people like Adam Chamberlain coming back. Uh, Darren will be talking with us, uh, Chris on the Sound of Snow as well. So we're looking forward to that as well. We've got David S. Walker back, hopefully. Uh, Tony will be here for, uh, potentially, as well. Um, I'm quite sure. Yes, I think he'll be doing the, um, he's been doing the Lucy Butler episode. So we have him coming back. So, yeah, so a lot to look forward to in in season three. And as I, as. said, uh, you've alluded to, it's definitely worth rewatching for those people who are, are sticking with us with the journey. Some people will be, um, you know, rewatching again along with us. And it's, uh, it'd be interesting to go through this season and, uh, at a time and going through it and critically analyze analyzing it and also seeing what the, how it resonates in today. So it's all fantastic. Um, so where can people find you online then? Um, before we, before we go,
1: uh, secretsun.blogspot.com and the secret sun speaks on Twitter.
2: Okay, fantastic. And you can find me at R Muldrake on Twitter. That's R M U L D R A K E. Uh, find me on the Star Trek Picard podcast as well. Make it so at Jean-Luc Podard, as well as the X cast, which, uh, which I know Chris mentioned before. That's the X underscore cast and the Red Dwarf Shipwrecked and Comatose podcast, which you can find on Twitter at Red Dwarf Pod. So thank you very much, um, for joining us. And until next time, remember this is who we are. Elsewhere, and we made this.
0: The Xcast an x-files podcast there's just this moment i can see it in my head now of complete glee that scully has on her face as they dive in to open their presence and it's it's you know the camera's moving away from the scene it's not even like a a huge close-up but um just her choice in that moment as as
2: as an actor is just superb to give us that sense about what their dynamic is Mm -hmm. um i love the um i said it earlier i love the the kind of almost holding fingers moment at the
0: end of field trip is, is is beautiful in the childhood. Mark, you heard the bell. We better get back to the
1: podcast.
0: Really? Yeah. I thought, you know, keep with the theme. Keep with the theme. Keep with the theme. Recess, you know, school stuff. Did you know, I didn't talk about this before. So, you know, like in primary school, and in all kinds of school, you have a break, you have a 15 minute break and you have a lunch. Yeah. I feel like I was the only kid in my school to ever call that first break recess. That's because you're not American. But, like, what else do you call it? Break. Break? Break and lunch. (laughs) I've decided after re-watching this that my breaks now in work are going to be called recess. Mine are not going to be called recess. Cerebral jukebox. Um, I thought that Stevie Nicks was a boy and that Lindsay Buckingham was the girl who was singing on it. Oh. Um, so,
1: <laughs> Because I just uh, assumed by their names that that was the way around it went. And then uh, when somebody else told me I would like Stevie Nicks I was like, uh, thanks I guess. I guess I'll grow my hair.
0: How dare you!
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was Big burly Man. <laughs>
0: Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network.
2: Time Is Now, a millennium podcast, was created by Tony Black and is produced by Tony Black and Kurt North. We can be found on Twitter at The Time Is Now Pod or by searching Facebook for The Time Is Now. We are part of the We Made This Podcast network, which can be found on Twitter at WeMadeThispod or on the website weMadeThispod.com. For bonus material and exclusives, check out our sister show, the XCast and X-Files Podcast, where you can find our Patreon. This is is who we are.